to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 15th, we're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. In today's text, St. Paul continues to speak about the ministry he has through God's mercy, by which he boldly proclaims Christ as Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Tim. As we get started, let's talk a little context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to chapter 4? Well, the letter itself, it's prompted by... Um, Titus bringing a report from the church at Corinth uh, with some things that needed to be addressed is maybe a good way to put it. Um, there's a little bit of strain between the church and Paul. <clears throat> uh, we discussed a little bit. There's outside influences. There's also some internal issues. Uh, some of the things that you see addressed in 1 Corinthians are still lingering just a little bit. Um, we have uh, the issue of factions in the church, where division was a big theme in 1 Corinthians, and there's still some of that lingering, uh, where they're not following Christ, they're following man over Christ, you might say. Um, there's sexual immorality, um, they're adhering to the old covenant, there is uh, devotion to the law in place of Christ. So Paul is having to readdress these things in the letter to a certain extent. Um, there's some new problems in the church where the collection for the saints at Jerusalem has ceased, and Paul needs to address that. Um, there's a little bit of criticism, and we'll get into this with some of the um, text later on, but Paul refusing to be supported by Corinth financially, and they don't quite understand why not. Um, and then there are also some false apostles, too, coming in and spreading false doctrine that Paul had to address uh, but one of the main things in this letter uh, that we'll see Paul addressing, and that's one of the big things we'll get into today, is just not only attacks on Paul himself as an apostle, but really more broadly on the ministry of the New Covenant as, as it's described here, um, and everything, the work of Christ, what difference that makes, should we follow Christ or the law or Moses, this distinction that people are making, uh, Paul needs to address that. Um, and we're going to see him defending not only his ministry, but uh, simply the ministry of Christ, uh, as we'll get into in a little bit. Um, and so there, there's issues going on, and Paul, you know, needed to address them. Um, the The church is just like any other church. It's made up of sinners who um, need to be called to repentance with certain things, and and Paul doesn't, you know, purport to be a perfect person. He's a sinner as well. Um, but he's trying to do a couple things that I, I think will help set up um, our discussion here. He's defending his credibility as an apostle, because that's come under attack, which 
is not so much to say uh, it's self-centered, but it's you need to you need to have this this um, proper view of the pastoral ministry because that does come with authority. Uh, and if you're doubting that, uh, you're going to doubt what I say. You're going to doubt what I do, which hurts the comfort of the gospel coming from Paul. So there's that aspect of it. But I'd say even more, he's defending um, Christ himself. Not that Christ needs defending, but he's um, he references phrases like in Christ, through Christ, Jesus is Lord. Um, so criticism of Paul really, really is criticism of who Paul is a minister of, Jesus Christ. Um, he's commissioned by Christ. He has the authority of Jesus. Um, and when you reject what Paul is doing or any really pastor standing in the stead of Christ, you're rejecting Christ himself. So that's one of the big things that Paul is addressing here. Um, and in the text leading up, there's it's, a, it's an interesting chapter break, uh, as a lot of the commentaries kind of pointed out, because a lot of the themes in 4 verses 1 through 6 are, are really just a continuation of a lot of stuff we see in chapter 3, especially uh, verses 7 through 18. Especially, uh, so 3 verse 12, if we flip to that, uh, Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And he, in the earlier parts of chapter 4, talks about openness uh, with the testimony of truth. Um, there's no need to be veiled or hidden. He he comments on the ministry. Uh, what is the ministry? We can go back to chapter 3 and see that. It's the ministry of the Spirit. Um, and then he kind of supplements that with the ministry of righteousness, explaining what is the Spirit doing in this ministry. Uh, and that's his whole purpose. And and then there's actually quite a bit about veiling and blindness in relation to Moses. <clears throat> when the glory of the Lord was uh, around Moses, he had to have a veil on his face. Um, but with Christ, he's the image of the invisible God, and there's no need for a veil uh, because Christ is the one who's the mediator between us and the Father, and um, he's the one who reveals God. He's the one who brings uh, righteousness before God, so there's no need to turn your face away from Christ. We get to look at him in faith and and see the love and, and the uh, righteousness of God in Christ that has been given to us. So, um, <clears throat> And then following chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it, Paul really kind of follows up something he does in chapter 1, where one of my favorite portions of Scripture, Paul talks about the comfort with which the Lord uh, works through affliction, uh, which is, we'll get into that a little bit as well, but it sounds odd that comfort comes through affliction, but Paul says precisely that, and he gets into, uh, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, and then he really follows it up in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, where he says, we're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not in despair. Um, we are suffering so that the life of Christ may be seen through us. Um, so we are in great affliction, but we don't lose hope. And that's exactly how he starts chapter 4. So, And, and that phrase, actually, we do not lose heart. He uses it um, twice uh, in this short span. So uh, he doesn't want he doesn't want people to be discouraged by suffering. He wants them to see uh, how 
Christ's suffering changes the way we look at it and understand what God's work is through it. So a lot going on here that we'll get to, but that's some of the helpful points I think that'll give us a good lens through which to look. Yeah, I think that ties into the text again from before, from the end of chapter 3, with also the the conversation that he had about where the glory lies. He talked about how the Old Covenant had this great glory, even though it was a ministry of death and has now passed away. And so there's a glory now to this new ministry, the one that he has, and that glory remains there as the reality, even in the midst of things like suffering, or even in the midst of, of someone who maybe doesn't seem to be all that impressive in person. And there's there's other super apostles that they maybe look better than Paul, but the glory lies in the actual ministry because it's giving you Jesus. And again, that's why, as you pointed out, it's important for Paul to defend it, not for himself personally, but for the sake of the one he proclaims, Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about Christ crucified and risen, as he said in 1 Corinthians, and that continues into this epistle. So we pick up the text. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Heckman, Paul begins in our section with the word therefore, so help us to see what the therefore is therefore, and what he says about his ministry coming through God's mercy, and this matter of not losing heart. Yep, that's a big transitional word, uh, especially in Paul's epistles, just in the Greek in general. So it says, I've said a lot of stuff before, and now what I'm saying now is really tied extremely uh, closely to what's come before. So chapter 3, we talked about um, outlining the ministry uh, that he's defending, the ministry and to which he is devoting his life. Um Going back to verse 16, uh, or sorry, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he's really focusing on the freedom that comes with uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and everything he's talked about is kind of transitioning into chapter 4. And it's interesting that that he begins by talking about the mercy of God with this ministry. Um, So Paul's Paul's defense for his status as an apostle, as a legitimate, um, you know, on envoy of Christ who's bringing God's gifts to his people um, from Christ through the Spirit, through the Word. Um, he goes back, it's not explicit here, obviously, but talking about the mercy of God, he knows full well what that looks like in his life, the road to um, Damascus, and he's rebuked by the Lord Jesus for his sin, and then he is baptized, so he knows this mercy of God pretty 
clearly um, he rests in God's mercy. That's all all about justification um, for the sinner. And now he's kind of pointing people to that. We have this ministry not through human action, not through human authority, but going back to God's mercy. Not only is God's mercy what brings us into his family, it's it's what gives us this ministry in the first place. Um, and that's a reflection, of course, of our justification as well. Um, and again, just as a reminder, justification is to have a right standing before someone, as you, uh, one way to put it, and we are declared right by the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we have no goodness within us to come to God. We have no goodness within us to be worthy of the ministry of which Paul talks about, but it's okay because God comes to us in Christ. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not said, uh, you you have to choose my son. I'm going to kind of put him in front of you. No, it's just like he came to Paul on the road to Damascus. He comes to us um, in our baptism. So he, Christ died for our sins, rose for our justification, and Paul puts everything on this justification. Um, by the mercy of God, we are not only saved, but we are given the ability and the authority to do the good things that God has given us to do. So it's interesting because some of the criticism Paul is getting is you are kind of an authority unto yourself or self-commendation. Uh, they thought he was deriving what he was doing, just you know, saying, I feel like this is something I'm supposed to do, or I'm a pretty important guy. I had a lot of status in my former life uh, as a Pharisee, uh, but Paul deflects uh, to Christ here. So it's it's a little confusing maybe at first. Why does Paul focus on God's mercy? But the reason is if it's God who works salvation in Paul, it's also God who works the same salvation in others through Paul as his instrument. Um, so the whole thing he's defending um, is always deferring back to God. Now, this phrase, we do not lose heart, I thought, it was kind of interesting uh, going through some some of what the commentaries were saying. Uh, we do not lose heart. Sounds like we, you know we don't get we don't get sad. Uh, we we don't get bummed or down. But actually, a lot of what I read actually has a lot more to do with we we're, we're not cowards. Basically, it has a lot to do with courage. Now there are usages where you know it's we aren't despairing or discouraged. And there's, there's probably a little bit of that too, but, um, another way people, one of the commentaries said it is we, we don't behave badly. We don't conduct, conduct ourselves remissly. So we aren't, um, in the face of false teachers and criticism and, and, and not, not constructive criticism, but sinful criticism. Um, and then the physical and spiritual suffering, we don't back down. We don't lose courage or shrink back because everything this is based on is Christ. He can't die again, as Romans 6 says. Um, so the ministry to which call, Paul is called, everything he's putting this on is on Christ, and you can't undo the source of authority, right? Christ can't be put back into the grave. He can't be rendered uh, null and void and without authority. Um, so again, that's why Christ is central here. Uh, it's everything Paul hangs his hat on. Um, and one, one other point I think is, 
is good to remember with this first verse. Um, so it's it's interesting because a lot of the sufferings that Paul has, and we don't really get into that in detail here, but I know in other letters he talks about shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and sleepless nights and hunger and all this stuff. And and we, we don't know exactly what the criticism leveled against him was, but uh, one of them was against his his character, his his um, you know his reliability, and, and kind of the attitude was: if your ministry really is from Jesus, uh, why is everything so difficult for you? <laughs> like, if if you're really from Christ, this all powerful being and and all this, uh, why are things going so poorly? And that's absolutely reflected in in some harmful Christian theology today. Um, or coming from Christians, uh, if we belong to Christ, things are supposed to go better. It's kind of a, um, a a really sinful litmus test. Like if you are rich, if you're healthy, if if um, you know you don't have a whole lot of hardship, if smooth sailing, that's a sign of God's favor. Um, but if you are not doing well, that must be a sign of God's unfavor or. God's punishment on you, or you're doing something wrong. Um, so Paul, in, in light of this, in response to it, points back to Jesus, of course, and, and Christ's cross. Uh, we, we sometimes call it the theology of the cross, where we look at the suffering of Christ to make sense of our own suffering, where Christ died, he, he was betrayed, and, and bore the wrath of God for us for our sin, but God raised him from the dead. So we don't always see the purpose in suffering, but we know that the Lord works good things through suffering. We call it redemptive suffering is one phrase with that. Um, so Paul shared in these sufferings in order that uh, people might remain faithful to Christ, and he's pointing them to Jesus to help them understand it. So it's comforting for us too because it's if, if we have the same sort of sufferings as Paul— and, and people criticize us or, or doubt our the genuineness of our faith, we say, well, that's not how Scripture speaks of suffering. Um, God works good things through suffering. It's, it's not that we have to walk around with a smile on our faces or, or um, you know, try to ignore it. We acknowledge it and say that in, in our theology with the Scriptures, we look at it differently than the world does. So, Paul, that was a big correction Paul needed to make here as well. <clears throat> Absolutely. And again, that what you're saying there sets the stage as a I mean it bridges from what we were saying yesterday about the or the the previous text about the glory and where the glory lies and the way that he's going to talk about that being hidden in jars of clay in the next section and the idea of living by faith rather than sight in chapter 5. So he's he's really helping to bridge that gap with what he's saying here about not losing heart, continuing to be bold and open in the proclamation of Christ, even in the midst of sufferings and criticisms. Now, he, he talks about that openness that he has, beginning in verse 2, and he contrasts that with the way that some others would, it sounds like, preach God's Word and their attitude in the ministry. Now, take us into the, the next verse. Yeah, so we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways— uh, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So it's interesting the contrasts he's setting up here. He uses uh, words like disgraceful, underhanded, cunning, tampering with, all you know, really bad things to do with God's word or the ministry. Uh, but then he all of a sudden shifts to 
open statement of the truth, not something underhanded or secretive. Um, and he commends to everyone's conscience. Any, anyone who wants to come and look at it can see, you know, in the sight of God. So we're not hiding anything from the one we're serving. Um, so the false teachers that he's trying to push back against are probably the main focus here, but really just anyone criticizing him for being underhanded or disgraceful. It's, it's kind of saying, um, if you want to, if you want to see what I'm doing, I'm not hiding anything. Um, I have no reason to lie. I have no reason to try to use, uh, secretive underhanded practices um, and, and one of the things he's addressing here, if, if this is a ways down, down the road for this study, but chapter 12, verses 16 through 18, um, this is where we get into some of the criticism that was probably being levied against him. Um, and it says, but, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So um, the disgraceful underhanded ways, I think it ties in with what he's saying in chapter 12 because the accusation is basically this. Paul, you received financial gain indirectly through the delegates you sent to Corinth. Um, which some at Corinth, again, were not, the fact that Paul has to explicitly address this probably means he was getting some of the criticism from the members of the Corinthian church. So they might have seen it as, well, you're not receiving financial gain from us, but you're using cunning, underhanded ways by sending people like Titus to extract it from us and then get it yourself. And and, and they might have thought, well, oh, You've got this lofty stance of declining payment, and you're—it's all just a show because you're getting it in a back, you know, back channel way, so to speak. Um, and the word for deception here that Paul uses or cunning uh, basically means to be ready to do anything. Um, so to be so desperate, you do anything to get something. Um, the, Basically, I'll get I'll do anything with God's word to get ahead financially. So Paul responds with chapter four, verse two. Uh, he condemns peddling the word of God um, back in chapter two, verse 17. But then here he talks about tampering with it or corrupting the word of God um, and says, I'm not doing that. I'm speaking with transparency. Uh, I write you letters. I make pastoral visits to you. I send my delegates to you. There's nothing secret about this. Um, and it's an interesting point to make because sinful gain is absolutely a temptation for those in a position like Paul, especially, I mean, not just positions of authority as, I mean, look at, you know, the news nowadays and all the scandals you hear about schemes to get more money, you know, to put it very basically. Um, and especially in the position of pastors, um, they are not immune to this temptation. In fact, they might be maybe more susceptible to that temptation because it's 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 a captive audience that the hearers trust you by nature of your profession. Um, this is a messenger of God. How could he do something like this? But many, many pastors fall prey to 
changing God's word or, or tampering with the truth for their benefit. We see that a lot in prosperity gospel preaching, uh, where it's give me money and you'll be blessed, uh, which has no basis in scripture, but it, it sure works for a lot of, a lot of unfaithful pastors. And that's what Paul was being accused of here. So his integrity is on the line. Um, but he's saying, I don't tamper with the word of God. Come what may, I preach the word in season and out of season, as he exhorts Timothy to. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block. But um, I just because it's a stumbling block, I'm not going to change it for my own benefit. So um, Paul Paul takes he's very careful to say it's not disgraceful or underhanded and 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 really it there's kind of an element of eschatology here uh the 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 theology of last things uh, especially a reference to the last day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead think of that phrase that Paul has the open statement of the truth commending himself to all in God's sight um there's a verse where <clears throat> Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus when he comes back. And that is to say, everyone is going to see Christ coming in his glory. Again, that theme of openness here, where there's nothing secret about not just the things that Christ does here through his apostles, but also that last day, there, nothing will be hidden. Uh, everyone will see who Paul has been preaching Christ crucified, and that will be Paul's vindica vindication, you might say. Uh, so he's saying, you know, you want to test what I'm doing, look at God's word, look at Christ. You'll see there's no deceit in my ministry. I'm being faithful to that testimony that we received from Christ and we've been handing down. Um, and it's it's really encouraging for us too. It's This is not just something that pastors deal with. It's Christians in general uh, deal with criticism um, your, uh, your, your faith is scoffed at, you're falsely accused of various things that Christians are accused of, you're mistreated as God's people, and when you don't have those instant results where, you know, I, I believe in Christ and I, I follow him, I trust his word, but things don't seem to be going terribly well for me, it can seem like there's no vindication. Um, but Christ has risen from the dead. Our faith is not in vain, as Paul said at the end of First Corinthians. And Paul's vindication on the last day will be our vindication as well, because we'll see the one in whom we have believed is here, just as he said he would he would be. Uh, just like that wonderful phrase from the angel in Mark uh, he, or Matthew. I can't remember which one it is, but uh, he. He is not here. He is risen just as he said, right? And and when Christ comes again, it'll be the vindication that Paul has been waiting for, but also ourselves. So he, again, we hang everything not just on the death and resurrection of Christ, but also this promise that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and he will judge us righteous um, by faith in Christ. And that's going to bring us right to our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Joel Heckman this morning about 2 Corinthians 4. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. 
We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 15th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we made it through the first two verses. In verses 3 and 4, Paul picks up language that he used in the previous chapter about the veil, and he talks about the gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. Talk to us about what he says about this veil for the minds of those who are perishing, those who have been blinded by the the God of this world, as he says. Yeah, and this again goes back to chapter 3. Since we have a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. Um, And that's what he's referencing with the veiled gospel. Um, It's not, again, he's kind of defending his preaching here because he's not making it confusing. He's not trying to be, you know, coy or or speak in riddles or anything, saying the gospel here is quite transparent. But it's veiled to those who are perishing. And I thought immediately of 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 25, where he says, We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Um, And he's reiterating uh, the the people who don't believe in this, believe in Christ, they are culpable. It's it's Mm. human sinfulness that rejects this gospel. And it's and, he, and when he when he talks about the God of this world, he's he's referencing Satan here, uh, blinding the minds of unbelievers. But he's not kind of getting unbelievers off the hook. He's saying Satan is working to maintain what these sinful men and women have already done themselves. Uh, so if someone rejects God, they are at fault completely. It's not like, well, the devil made me do it sort of thing. The, the devil tries to keep you there, and he's successful with many people. Um, but to be veiled means to... Uh, there's one translation I found that I, I thought was kind of helpful, insensitive to truth. Uh, so you you reject the truth, essentially. Um, but And it, it's not secrecy or deceit from Paul that causes someone not to believe. Um, he's transparent with his law and his gospel. It's our sinfulness that causes us to reject God, um, but it's the grace of God that brings us from death to life, as Jesus says in John's gospel, um, when he gives us that gift of faith. 
And it was interesting because we we had this discussion on justification in, in, in our Sunday Bible study at St. John's this last Sunday, and we we did talk about free will. Um, what are we as humans free to do regarding salvation? And the scriptures, we would say, teach quite clearly that human will can reject God. We do have the ability to do that, but we cannot choose to believe in him, decide to believe in him. It, it's not as though like, you know, Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends to the right hand of God. He does all this work and then he kind of preps you to believe. He, he kind of primes you, so to speak, and then you've got to take that last little step and say yes to him. No, we, we get no credit. Um, we cannot, the scripture does not even allow for someone to say, well, if it's rejection that I'm capable of, I guess I'm, you know, I, I'm better than that person because I didn't reject. No, it's it's not even that. It's it's the completely free gift of God. Anything good within us comes from God. Uh, we have no ability to choose God to, you know, refrain from rejecting him. Um, and so the whole point of this is our comfort is not in ourselves, but in God. And if the veil has been lifted from our eyes, it's from Christ's power through the Holy Spirit, working through the word. Those who look to Moses, those who look to the law for righteousness, remain blinded and condemned in their unbelief. Um, so just reflecting a little bit more on um, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God and the, the God of this world. That's a pretty stark contrast where Satan works to he, he work, works to get us away from the word is, is essentially his primary goal. Uh, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis with Adam and Eve and the primary means by which Satan worked was to cause them to doubt the word of the Lord. Did God really say this was his proposal to Eve? And then Eve starts thinking, well, maybe he didn't, or maybe he did, but he didn't mean that. So Satan's always trying to blind us from the clear gospel, the clear proclamation of Christ, the clear law of God, which still has a role, of course, in the life of Christians. Um, we, are, we are meant to see not just the fact that humans are culpable for unbelief, but also that Satan is at work. Uh, the God of this world is constantly trying to take us away from Christ. Um, but thanks be to God that, you know, he continues to give us that light of the gospel through through a, a, his gifts, right? He We still hear the word preached. We still receive the supper of our Lord Jesus for our forgiveness. We still receive the absolution we still have other Christians who draw us toward Christ. Uh, we still have the gift of prayer through which the Lord strengthens our faith. He answers our prayers. Um, and especially if you look at Ephesians 6, that, that wonderful armor of God text uh, where Paul is acutely aware of the attacks of Satan. So what does he say? Um, Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the God of this world. So Christ's light shines through the word of God. His spirit takes that word and makes it tangible in all these gifts that God gives us. So we give thanks to God for that. And, and, and maybe a little bit of what Paul is doing here is say, don't, uh, 
as we heard in, in a lot of texts leading up to the end of the church here, don't fall asleep uh, because Satan is always at work. He's this roaring lion prowling around trying to destroy your faith, but we run to the, the cross of Christ when Satan does that. When he accuses us, we say, I am righteous in Christ. When he tries to make us doubt the word, we go to the word. We go to God's servants, Allah, the Christians with Paul and Corinth to say, um, help me to understand this. Help me to rightly understand the word of God. And that's how the God of this world, he might be veiling other people, but not not us because we we rest in Christ and his righteousness and his word. Mm. Yeah, back in chapter 2 when he was speaking about the forgiving the one who'd been brought to repentance, he he talked about making sure that that we're not outwitted by Satan. We are ig- we are not ignorant of his designs. And so similarly here to warn us against the the working of Satan and to see again the role that he plays in in unbelief, not that he gets blamed for it, but so again that we're not ignorant of what he's what he's up to. You could connect that to the parable of the sower that Jesus tells, and the way that Satan is there compared to the bird who comes along and and snatches up the seed of of God's word. Uh, so to to see his role in it, to be aware of it, so that we would not be ignorant nor outwitted by him, uh, but rather continue to hold fast to Christ who is the true light. So the unbelievers, their, their minds are blinded from seeing this, but we do see. And so this, this theme of light and glory, which again comes up in chapter 3, continues here into chapter 4. Uh, help us into to verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Exactly. Um... Again, going back to his first letter, uh, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, essentially saying I'm not trying to promote myself, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's very similar language here. We proclaim not ourselves, but Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So there are two things going on here, kind of to split the verse in a, in a couple different portions. Um, Paul is deferring to Christ as the one to whom he is serving, the one whom he's serving, but also the one to whom he points. Um, especially in this Advent season, we see that a lot with John the Baptist, um, where you, you can't get to Jesus unless you go through John here in Advent, right? Um, and so John is always saying he must eat, increase, I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's pointing to Christ just as Paul does here. Um, and I'm, uh, we, we have this uh, sermon series we're doing once a month uh, on the 100th anniversary of the building at St. John's. So we're focusing on a theological aspect of the architecture and this coming weekend is pulpits. Um, as I'm recording this, it'll have been about a month ago when you actually hear this. I always forget that. That's all good. Um, but the, the the whole question is, why do we have pulpits? What's the theological significance? And there's many, many things that um, go into it, actually. the it's, a, it's really interesting. If our listeners want to study up on that, there's some interesting things that um, go into it. But... Um, 
Among other reasons, pulpits are meant to diminish the preacher in terms of his importance and increase the importance of Christ so that he would be lifted up and exalted. Because as you look at the pulpit versus maybe a pastor who's uh, walking around or something a little bit more visible, not that that's condemned, um, but when you look at the pulpit, you see a little bit less of the pastor and you hear a little bit more of Jesus, I think. And that's critical here why Paul says Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, We confess Jesus is Lord and we call attention to him versus going up, peddling God's word. You know, we people today talk a lot about having a brand or an image that you try to cultivate, and that's especially true with social media where what you put out there is, is kind of your brand, um, kind of like a, you know, a clothing brand or a, a sports team where what you see in public, what you see on their accounts, their websites is that's them. It's exactly what people try to do today. Um, and Paul was being accused of kind of promoting himself, but he says, no, I don't proclaim myself at all. If I, he might've said, if I did, things would look a lot different than they do now. <laughs> Um, I, you know, he, he probably would, would have an easier life, uh, because he's, he would change the gospel to make life easier for him so that he's not suffering as much. But he says, I'm proclaiming Christ. Um, and without Jesus as Lord, uh, we'd say if Jesus is Lord, you know, he is the divine son of God. He has power over sin and death and hell and Satan. Why in the world would anyone in Paul's position, try to call attention to themselves when Jesus is Lord. That's really what Paul is getting at here. He is the one to whom you submit. Obviously, you submit to the authority of pastors, but you're really submitting to Christ because pastors submit to Christ as well. Um, Absent Jesus, if you're proclaiming yourself, it really just turns into this um, kind of pointless moralism, uh, honestly. We, We talk about sermons um, that are void of any substance. You can hear them in a lot of churches nowadays. Uh, they're, they could kind of be boiled down to motivational speeches or here's things you can do to make your life better. Uh, and it's not that having a better life is a bad thing. That's just not the goal of Christianity. That is not the goal of preaching. The goal of preaching is to shape you inform you to be a faithful Christian, but most of all, it's to comfort you, um, to give you the gospel of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And and yes, the law comes into that, and we are shaped to be faithful through faithful law and gospel preaching, but ultimately the end goal of preaching is to bring us comfort through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Um, And so Paul's defending that as that's the purpose, but then he, he finishes with, we ourselves are servants for you for Jesus sake. Um, so God works through means God could, you know, through, a, I don't know, a loudspeaker in heaven, <laughs> uh, proclaim these things. Uh, I mean, he has worked through other means other than preachers, but, um, the word is God's instrument for bringing people to faith, uh, and God's people are his mouthpiece, right? So Paul as an apostle is, um, a mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus, where he's serving people in word and sacrament ministry. And then even Christians, when they go out in their everyday lives, are mouthpieces because they have been given the light of the glory of Christ. They, re- 
reflect that light through um, not simply their service. And I, I'd say it, it that's a good thing, but that doesn't actually get to the gospel. The gospel is the word of God spoken, proclaimed. So people can see our good actions, but we've been giving that light of the gospel, that um, verbal message that Christ has died and risen from the dead and saved us from our sins, justified us before God. So uh, Paul Paul doesn't lord um, the ministry over people. He submits to Christ. He is an under-shepherd, and a shepherd takes care of his people. So to say we're slaves, we're your servants for Jesus' sake is to say everything we do is for you on behalf of Christ. Um, our whole purpose is not to promote ourselves, not to better our standing in the world. It's to make every sacrifice to which Christ calls us on your behalf. So we don't promote ourselves. We don't point to ourselves, just as John the Baptist does in our gospel readings this Advent season, uh, just as Paul did. We defer to Christ. We point to Christ because when Christ increases, so do both faith and comfort. When man increases, faith decreases, comfort decreases. Um, so we kind of, we try to get out of the way, if, if you might say that, as, as, not just as pastors, but as God's people. We say, don't look at me for comfort, look at Jesus. Mm, yeah, that's right. I mean, verse 5 here, I think, is a fantastic one for any any pastor to hold on to as a, mm -hmm. a summary of what the pastoral ministry looks like. We're not here to proclaim ourselves. We're here to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and we're doing that as servants for those who hear for the sake of Jesus. It's a, a really a fantastic summary of what the pastoral ministry ought to be, and and then also a summary of what the goal of a congregation ought to be. You know, a Christian congregation is not located in a particular place to proclaim themselves, to make a name for St. John's Lutheran Church, or to make a name for Faith Lutheran Church, but rather to make the name Jesus Christ as Lord proclaimed to all people for the sake of Jesus as servants. So what a fantastic verse for, for all of us to hold on to, pastors and congregations together, to see our role that God has given us in this world. Now, Paul then in verse 6 concludes our section for today, really emphasizing this theme of light. So he says in verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So then you've got a connection there to creation. You've got a connection there to the incarnation of our Lord, to I mean, even the face of Jesus Christ shining reminds me of the transfiguration. A number of places we can go with this this last mm -hmm. verse in our text, Pastor Heckman. I, I think Paul is touching on all of that. Uh, clearly, let God said, "Light shine out of darkness." God spoke, and it was so at creation, um, shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been talking about this theme of Advent right now. We're in the Advent season, of course, as this is recorded. Uh, we'll be, I think, even past the Christmas season by the time you hear it. But um, think back yeah. to Advent. There's this light darkness contrast where Christ came into the world as the light of the world. This is a huge theme of John's gospel, especially in chapter one. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Um, 
We light Advent candles. Uh, we light the Christ candle to represent the growing brightness as the Advent candles are lit, the growing brightness as Christ's birth draws near, and then the lighting of the Christ candle as Christ has come. We reflect on that. Um, the transfiguration, the glory of Jesus Christ, and um, uh, the resurrection at, at, at sunrise, the, the morning, the first day, um, all these wonderful themes coming into play here. And this is a huge gospel verse here. Um, God's word breaks into the darkness at creation to bring something that was not there. And in the same way, um, in our baptism especially, um, something that was not there is now there through the light of Christ breaking through in his word where God combines word with water and the gospel comes to us, the good news of Jesus Christ and God creates faith there. Um, and even Paul's story I see here too, uh, because what happened to Paul, he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And then uh, what happens when he goes and is baptized, he's able to see again. Uh, so it, it's it's a nice symbolism that he shows here with um, how you might visualize what happens when we are baptized. Again, it's like the veil being taken away, blindness turning into sight. Um, God saves in baptism, and that light comes through there. Um, and and really throughout this whole pericope here and throughout Second Corinthians, probably the best way to sum it up is just constant reflection from Paul of the light of Christ pointing back to him. His defense is all Jesus. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his miracles, his forgiveness, um, just as Christ shown in Paul's heart so he reflects that light so that it would shine in the hearts of others. Um, and maybe a last little analogy. I did this in our children's message this uh, about a month month ago um, at the time of this record, or <laughs> when you hear this. It was last week at the time of this recording. Um, but I, I illustrated John the Baptist as kind of like a TV antenna. I don't know how many of our listeners use TV antennas anymore. I, we, I, I still do. We, we yeah. have a TV antenna. <laughs> Old yeah, I hold our congregation and some of them raise their hands. But <laughs> so the antennas on the TV, what's it doing? It's clarifying the picture. You're not supposed to look at the antenna. You're supposed to look at the screen. Uh, so don't look at me is, is what John and Paul and every other faithful Christian says. It's look at Christ who is your life. Um, so this contrast of light and darkness is really summed up. If you look at yourself, for righteousness, if you look to your own works, if you look to other things for comfort, that's as though you have a veil on your face, as though there's you're living in darkness. But having your eyes fixed on Christ by the word of God, that's being in the light, that's seeing clearly. Um, and it won't always feel like that. Um, it won't always seem as though, you, you know, I'm doing what the Lord has told me to do. I am I believe in Jesus. Shouldn't my life be going better? That's what Paul was, the criticism he was dealing with. But our comfort is is not in perfect circumstances. Our comfort is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we say, you know, as Paul says, just, just a little bit after this in chapter four, these present light momentary afflictions are preparing us for a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison, which is to say the new heavens, the new earth, what we have to look forward to is fantastic, and 
even here, there are still many good things that God gives us. And uh, we we say, God be praised for the, the blessings of daily bread and the the blessings of word and sacrament ministry that God gives us. But we we don't just live for this life. We we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, as we talked about all through the Advent season as well. Christ came, you know, once he came in blessing that that great hymn we sing in Advent, he's coming again in blessing as well. So we cling to those promises even as we suffer as as God's people. Yeah, just just briefly, because the this text does come up this year, if you're using the three-year lectionary, this text will come up on Transfiguration Sunday, which from when this is airing is about a month away, so a little bit less. And so this this text, thinking about the Transfiguration, and this verse in particular, you know, the you see the face of Jesus Christ shining on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that vision doesn't last for the Apostles, but, or for Peter, James, and John, but what does is what the Father's voice says, listen to him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think you see that emphasis even in this verse, right? God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So you may not always see the the glory of the face of Jesus. That, that happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, but you need to keep that in mind as you hear the Word of God, that same glory is continuing to be revealed, continuing to be shown to you, uh, through that word that's proclaimed. So keep listening to Jesus, even if that brilliant glory doesn't always seem to be present. Truly in his ministry that he gives, his glory is shining forth into our hearts still today. Mm-hmm. So yep, th- thoughts absolutely. to... Keep your eyes thought, on Jesus. That's right. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Listen to him, as the Father's voice says, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As God once created all things by his word, so he has created faith in our hearts by his word. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Listen to him. Behold his glory. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.